Hello, college coaches, and welcome to or welcome back to the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. This time, my guest is Daryl Cummings. Daryl accumulated over 600 wins during his 20 years as a college coach at Norfolk State University, Virginia Wesleyan, and Old Dominion University. You've probably come across Daryl on social media or on his YouTube channel. You may also know him as one of the founders of the UTR, although he keeps that a big secret. In this podcast, Daryl shares his insights into how coaches can develop their entrepreneurial spirit, their marketing skills, and what he would do if he was the czar of college tennis for a day. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daryl. Daryl Cummings, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. David, great to be here. Um, finally, I mean, I've been begging you to be on this podcast for it, it seems like years, but I know it hasn't been years. It's probably only months. So, I mean, I've been sucking up to you, and here we go. <laughs> well, there's there's uh, lots of different directions we're going to go in today, and I think we're, we're going to have some fun along the way, and uh, hopefully I can challenge you, and you'll challenge me a little bit, and, and we'll have lots of laughs. So um, you, you, you've been involved in so many different things, Daryl, through the years. Why was it important for you to do you know, more than just recruiting and coaching during your time as a college coach at three different colleges? Well, the, the three different colleges that I coached at, um, you know, Old Dominion University for 19 years, Virginia Wesleyan for three, Norfolk State for three, um, they, they were all kind of one for me because I, I was born and raised in Norfolk, Virginia, and each university is only 15 minutes apart. Mm. So, um I thought I was done when I finished coaching Old Dominion after 19 years. And then I set out a year and I'm talking to the Virginia Wesleyan athletic director and uh, we were going over candidates and she said, would you be interested? So she just said, Hey, would you be interested if we were interested? And I said, well, uh, would you be interested if I was interested? You know, it's kind of thing. And then she told me this magical thing that, that, that if I was the coach, I would get to use a charter bus to go to all of our away matches. And I've never had a charter bus. So boom, I was in. I was the Virginia Western coach, you know. So, and then at Norfolk State, my friend asked me, uh, Nat Warren, who founded the program, he retired, and he kind of muscled me, and he goes, "Come on, let's, if you coach just one more program, then you've coached all three in Norfolk, you know, and uh, that's where you're born." So, so I did that, but um, so it was always more than just college coaching. I mean, I, I, I was I was into college coaching for sure, but I wasn't going to be the guy that was going to go to Nebraska or the University of Virginia or something of that nature. So it was always a community thing for me. I enjoyed the college coaching, the competitiveness. But then as a, as a mid-major school or, or, or just being a school in general, you're trying to make your program better. So in order to be better, you got to do things that are necessary. So it's kind of like the end justifies the means. You need to fundraise. You need to make your program relevant in your community to build facilities, to recruit players, and, and to create an atmosphere or culture. So it, it was just, uh, you know, necessity was the mother of invention there. So it was, you just wanted to be good. And these were the steps necessary to do so. Mm. And so how did you figure that out? It just in terms of yeah, I mean, <laughs> you wanted to take, you know, take a trip and it's like, well, if I'm to take this trip, I need to raise this money or, or how did that kind of all come together in terms of understanding yeah. that this job was a lot more than just coaching and recruiting? Well, it, it, 
developed certainly over the period of time, but it developed fastly, that's for sure, because I'm, I remember getting a, a contribution at Old Dominion for $500, and I was thinking, hmm, that's enough for like half of the books, you know, for a scholarship. So that really wasn't that much. Mm-hmm. I, I watched uh, I watched a lot of sports, you know, all kinds of things. And so Charles Barkley kind of inspired me. Um, <laughs> you know, the look on your face, like, how's he inspired? Well, he's telling the story on one of these sports shows, and he's saying um, the people want to be a part of prosperity, not poverty. So he's telling the story that he would get $180 a day per diem for being a basketball player, and he would go to a very nice restaurant, and he would pass in front of a couple homeless people. Then he would go into the restaurant, and the owner would make a big deal of it and give Charles Barkley his meal for free because he's Charles Barkley. He's an NBA player. And I think at the time he's playing for Arizona, I mean, he, he, Phoenix. I think he was Phoenix. Um, and, and, you know, they're probably traveling somewhere. So, so he said, well, people want to be a part of prosperity, you know, not poverty. So that changed my whole mentality of fundraising. So, um, so instead of saying, hey, uh, do you want to be a part of our program? We need this. We need this. We don't have that and so forth. I, w- I would, we would beat Georgetown who had no scholarships, but the name resonated. Hey, we just had a big win over Georgetown. And, and, um, and so we would start fax publications and email publications, sharing this and talking about the players and want to be in, you know, hey, do you want to be a part of this? So whatever a part of this is. So then we, so from there, then learning that different people or people will contribute differently to your program. So some would, um, you know, would would want advertising dollars or some are interested in facilities or some are inter- interested in endowments, which endowments still many college coaches and many people don't even realize the value of an of endowment or uh, or annual giving uh, uh, or just being a part of your events. So I so I learned kind of quickly that we, you know, we would do like bus trips to to the Lake Mason tournament in Washington D.C. the pro tournament, mm-hmm. fifty people on there, and we actually made a profit from it. But at the same time, we're cultivating people to be a part of our program, and um, and then it didn't even need to go to a tennis tournament. I mean, you could go to a baseball game or Top Golf, you, you know. So so Top Golf, I remember we did a fundraiser there. It took us. 21 days to put together and we made some thousands of dollars, but more importantly, we made fans. So I remember the people at top golf saying, don't you feel weird doing golf here, fundraising for your tennis program? Oh man, sometimes you got to take the money from the devil to do God's work around. (laughs) That's what it was about. So, uh, so you, you just look for things that not only create money, but made, made your program relevant. And it just, um, you know, if no one knew about it, then so that's how it began. And so when we began, it was before the internet, and um, you know, in, the, in these sort of things. But um, so hopefully, that was a, a long answer to a short question you asked. Was just uh, take a freaking bus trip. You, you know that if you get thirty people on the bus to go to wherever, like right now, we're going to Florida next week for the Super Bowl. Maybe you can help me out because I would like to take some friends. But I don't have any tickets to the Super Bowl. So, uh, in your position, ITA and so forth, mm. I'm 
I'm sure Mr. CEO's got some tickets he's sitting on there. We'll, we'll hook you up later, Daryl. So anyway, hopefully that answers the questions. It, it just it, it yeah. just started, and you um and you looked at other things. I mean, um, you know, like we didn't have a strong alumni base, so you just not writing a letter to alumni. So we would do things like raffles. In in a raffle, I could go to a tennis community and sell. Uh, we sold a hundred tickets and a hundred dollars, ten thousand dollars, and we were um, the, the winner would receive two thousand dollars, and second place won. And so it was the old fifty-fifty raffle concept. So um, the community tennis pros would get involved. Each one would sell ten or something like that. And sometimes I would just sit in front of the Seven Eleven and say, "Hey, my ticket has better odds than what you're getting ready to purchase in there." You know, so. Anyway, there was a lot of trial and error, and uh, a lot, lot of trial and error, and starting on on uh, grassroots kind of uh, fundraising. Yeah, so you, you've obviously got a very entrepreneurial spirit. So I am interested in some of the bigger projects that you've been involved in throughout your career, not just mm-hmm. in, in college, but then also how you would encourage coaches to develop their own entrepreneurial spirit and, and why that's important. Yes, yeah, so I'm not sure when that kicked in. You, you know, like it, it was. I, I spoke at a. I, I, I spoke at a class at Old Dominion for graduate students uh, in sports management, and um, this class was about entrepreneurship. So I asked them, "Hey, do you guys want to be entrepreneurs? Raise your hand." So about eighty percent of them raised their hand. I said, "Well, to be an entre- true entrepreneur, you sh- you shouldn't be taking this class." If I was you, I'd go drop the class. Of course, the professor looking at me like, "What the hell? hey, hey, we got what's going on here, right?" <laughs> An entrepreneur is not something you study. An entrepreneur is the guy, you know. So they uh, asked them definitions of their entrepreneur, and they said, well, it's a guy that does this, or a woman that does this, and you know, starts your own business. Yeah. An entrepreneur is the person that works eighty hours a week to keep from working for the man for forty hours. And so that's kind of like, um, I mean, isn't that what college coaching is about? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're working 40 hours, then that's probably not enough. Now, you, you, you don't want to get divorced and family and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of hours in a week, but you're usually the family's involved in it. So that that entrepreneur spirit is, is um, you know, it's branding. Um, it, it, it's, it's so many things. It's not just money, but, you know, how can you make your tennis team more relevant, whether it be more followers on Twitter or Instagram or, or so forth. Um, so entrepreneurship, I, I was never sure if it was about uh, money, even though I do like money and I have had some successful ventures that turned profitable, but, but they didn't. That was never the intention. I mean, they, I mean, it was kind of it was it was out there, but mm-hmm. passionate about something, and you were committing fully to it. So um, I had a meeting one time with as, as a fundraiser with Andy Becklesheim, who was the co-founder of Sun Micro, and um, and I think he's one of the largest shareholders of Google stock. And he goes, "Look, Daryl, we didn't do this to make zillions of dollars. We did it because we just wanted to make the world a little bit better." You know. To, to we th- and, and we became passionate about it. And so at that time I said, um, is there any way you want to put your name on our, our new indoor facility or something like that? And he goes, well, can you spell Becklesheim? <laughs> Calling it the Andy. Let's just call it the Andy. You know? <laughs> um, 
So I, I realized in networking with college coaches, I mean, entrepreneurship is, you can go that route, but there are some coaches out there, they have a nice program um, and um, and they manage it very well. Like the Division Three models are great because you only get to work with the kids for 19 weeks and the coaches are protected from themselves. Um so the, it, it just starts with, um, you know, especially the field of tennis, there's so many networks of people and it's, it's easier to get involved into your community and your clubs because you usually have some very good players and so forth. So how do you encourage coaches to, to do that? It, it's, um, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. I mean, if you, Gary Vaynerchuk, Casey Nasted, I mean, if you, if you do that or just go to Vegas for a week and just sit there and you go, man, how can they make a lot of things relevant here? And they partner with each other, you know, so a, a, a good college program is a partner within their tennis community. They're not trying to steal all the attention. They're trying to raise it all up to make tennis more relevant in their community and, and to be a part of that. So, um, so the answer to your question as far as entrepreneurship is how do you coach that up? I, I, I think you more just, you, you got to engage and, and, and just make, and, and kind of make it happen, you know, start with one event or, and so forth. And, and you think big programs don't partake in this. I mean, I get Billy Martin, UCLA email and then he's always got some event going on. It's the racketeer thing in January and so forth. So, Many of the so-called big programs that you wouldn't think would need that are doing it. And certainly, uh, like Manny Diaz in Georgia, I mean, he works social media. I mean, just think, I knew that that uh, um, that uh, the legendary coach at Georgia just turned 100, and he's played for years. So I know that a, you know, I mean, Manny is, is, is sharing that, you know, information, and, and he's very relevant. So that's just, a, a little bit of hustle mm. you know, uh, a lot of ways to engage and a lot of people to to duplicate and copy yeah i, I really love what you said about the the college program just being part of the the greater tennis community and and nobody's necessarily better than anybody else if we yeah. all help each other it's good for tennis it's good for the individual club or the park or the high school and also yeah. the, the college so what what are some <clears throat> maybe low-level things that coaches can start doing um, on a weekly, daily, monthly basis? Um, you know, is there is there an, an event that might be easy to get started, uh, you know, and start growing? Uh, what other things around social media in terms of making those contacts? How, if you are a new coach getting started in a different part of the country uh, where you maybe don't have the connections that you had growing up, you know, where, where you are in Norfolk, um, how would you go about that? Um, the, the, the first thing is just to figure out what, what's around you, you know, the tennis clubs, um, who are the playmakers into that community. And, and you just start with gathering some emails and some, and some content and a cell phone number. Then you, you can start with the email list, um, sharing information about your program. We have this new recruit coming. So email, it's still, um, you know, this isn't the 80s where, well, I don't even know if there's email in the 80s. Let's say it's the 90s. This isn't where you get a 90% open rate. Mm. But it's still relevant. Uh, so, you, you, I mean, you typically get 30% or something like that. But just start with gathering up some emails and sending out an email once a week 
uh, about your program. And then also you can recognize someone else in the community at some point. It could be a tennis pro that just did very well in, in some age group tournament. Just start with the email and, um, and build that list. And, and then you can incorporate your recruits so that are, that are emailing you, maybe the ones that don't fit into your program on this list. And, and now, now you're providing a community um, uh, information about the program. So um, that, that's just always, that's, that's a basic one to get started and does take some time. And then of course, engagement on, um, on social media, uh, uh, liking all the people around, you know, fa Facebook's a good one. It's kind of a good for all age groups, but just liking all the pros, getting them to be your friends and so forth. And, and, um, and then it just progresses from there because now that you become more relevant when you're reckon, you know, recognizing someone's birthday or so forth. Like we just mentioned, Dan Miguel's birthday was recognized. And it, so everybody's a rock star in their own community. Mm -hmm. and so you, you start with the emails and then the social media. And then from there, then you just kind of parlay it into events like, you know, a, a road trip to a baseball game or something like that, or to a play. And, and then you have the uh, local tennis pro or tennis director at, at, at one of the clubs that, that you guys can partner in it. And it can be uh, an entrepreneurial activity where the coach can earn extra income, or it can be an entrepreneurial activity where you can raise money for your program or, or for an assistant coach or something like that. But just starting with those basics and, and just engaging right away. It doesn't need to be a, a, some long-term plan there. It's gathering up some emails, some cell phone numbers, and just informing people using technology of, of what's going on with your program. Mm -hmm. And you talked uh, a little bit about that relationship you had with Andy, the major investor in Google. I can't say oh, yeah. the last name, never mind, spell it. There you go. Um, but uh, can you talk about maybe how you cultivated that relationships and, and cultivated relationships with other people of, I guess, high net worth that yeah, might yeah. be willing to, to give to your program? Yeah, that, well, that, that, that particular relationship, one of my former players is his significant other and they had a child together. So that kind of made it easy. Mm -hmm. in, in the fundraising component, the people that I've studied that are the best fundraisers are the ones that never ask anyone for money. They just, it's a constant cultivation of, um, and then the, the people will tell you that when they want to get engaged. Um, so, um, and many times you cultivate, you have, there, there are formulas out there with development officers that um, they, they can do background checks and, you know, and they can actually, the, the big leagues, they can tell you, hey, this person's mm -hmm. years of, they have no kids and they're 10 years of football tickets at the University of Georgia and he retired from this and his expected gift would be that, you know. Um, most of us don't have that information. So if you just treat everybody kindly, you never know what it turns into. Our, our first donation from great folks was I was just, I just played tennis with him. And I think his first check was for $3,000. And the next check was for 5000 And then maybe 5000 started to sponsor our tennis tournaments. And then I asked him, hey, would you be interested in being um, – and changing tennis in our area. He goes, yes. I go, we're going to build this in, this indoor tennis center. 
He goes, well, I go, it's going to be seven and a half million dollars. And he goes, I go, would you like to uh, provide some leadership in this? He goes, great. How much can I do that? Yeah. How much will it cost? I said, a million. So he asked me the price. And so now we have the folks Stevens indoor and he went to Clemson. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was a natural, it's just go tennis makes it easy. You can go play tennis with people, hit some tennis balls. And, and um, you know, a lot of affluent people play tennis. And, and so I, I never really had it where, where it was I targeted someone per se. I targeted everyone and just wanted to create engagement. And then they would tell you, you would get them to the point, they would tell you how they would like to be involved in the program. And, you know, wouldn't have to ask for the money. And um, But, but it, 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 who knows how it starts? Like, like with Andy Becklesheim, I ended up having a meeting uh, with him with dinner. And, um, and he graduated from Stanford. And I was on the West Coast. And um, nothing materialized out of it yet but but um you, you know uh, um we had discussions and um and, and uh, at virginia wesley we had a, a gentleman butch everett donated a million dollar endowment to us and he just asked me we had lunch together he goes daryl i'm retiring for the board that's yeah he goes what well, i'd like to do something special i go you mean like help me in recruiting no no i'm thinking about something more than that i go legacy thing and he goes yeah legacy thing i said endowment he said yeah yeah i'm going to start an endowment <laughs> so well, what are you thinking about and he goes well i'm thinking about a million and i was like damn it's two million to start an endowment here and you only got a million and <laughs> laughing so the deal was done i said can i ask you for a favor because because you, you just got a million that what's the damn favor can you make it one million five thousand dollars and he goes, what's 5000 for? I got, I want to get Matt's V-Linder here on the courts. And I want Matt's V-Linder to come here because he's former number one in the world. And I want to invite all the tennis pros in the community. And I want them to be on the campus. And we have a former number one player. And he's going to drive up in an RV. And he goes, was well, he poor that he's getting an RV? And I said, no, 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 no. It's, it's just it's part of the stick, man. It's part of the stick. So we developed relationships like that that were just, you know, very, very more natural, much more organic just from creating activities of interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, but just start with some emails and, 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 and if you're not meeting X amount of new people a, a week, then, you know, maybe, maybe your expectation of growth in the program might not be as well. Mm -hmm. But we will learn skills. I learned skills that I never thought I would learn that has helped me from a personal standpoint, from a financial standpoint, a community standpoint, and just from an intrinsic standpoint. It's, 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 been, it's been a blessing. Mm. So there wasn't necessarily any system behind it. It was, it was more just getting out in the community, meeting these individuals, developing relationships with them. And then when opportunities came along to have a lunch or a dinner or play some tennis, you just said yes. You basically said yes, yes to everything. Uh, most everything, but, but we also created these events for, for them to, to be a part. I mean, for sure. Um, at Old Dominion, we had a scholarship tennis tournament, and we had a hundred, and it was doubles, all different levels, and it was held at a, another tennis club called Virginia Beach Tennis and Country Club, and uh, our players were playing it, and there would be, um, I don't know, about 180 players, 90 doubles teams, and um, it'd be a weekend, so my players got to play tennis. They got to interact with the community. Everyone got an Old Dominion tennis t-shirt for the event. 
and um, and we had sponsorships. So we made we we made money for our scholarships. Great community event, and everything just kind of filtered from there. I mean, it, and because the interactions, the uh, these are 180 people I'm emailing now, and and, um, and they're all walking around town with an Old Dominion tennis T-shirt. And the average tennis player wears a T-shirt probably about it's about 30 or 40 times a year. I figure, you know. So the branding we got on it, yeah. it was. Um, was great. So just that one tournament, but it didn't have to start with 180 people. It could start with just 30 people or so forth. And then, so that created the runoff activities because tennis is a participation sport and people enjoy participating, especially hitting with hitting and playing with your players. And so we also used it as an alumni event because sometimes you'll have these alumni events and you have an alumni event and like 12 alumni there and you feel like you're fishing, you know what I mean? Just sitting out there. So these alumni would come back and be a part of the community. So uh, mm. that event, we did it for 19 years. And uh, it just, that one event in the fall changed, just created a, a bunch of runoff follow-up activities. And then we, then uh, at Norfolk State, we went to the Top Golf thing because it's February. It's cold. Top Golf has fancy. You you could hate golf, and you could still have like. I mean, I don't really like golf. It kind of bores me. I mean, I like watching Tiger to see if he's going to win something, right? But mm-hmm. but to sit there and eat nachos and watch uh, these women whiff on golf balls and they're laughing at each other, having fun and drinks. So that whole Top Golf experience is, provides the atmosphere for you. By the way, I do not have a sponsorship with Top Golf or endorsed. I think other ones are called the Shack. But starting with that one event and using the sport in, in the participation, because that's the beauty of what makes tennis so special. I mean, it's it's the nature of the game. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think the job of a college coach has changed at all over the last oh. thirty years? And oh. and oh. what what you know what skills do coaches need to be developing? How can they develop them? We talked about the entrepreneurial spirit earlier, but above that, how how can they get better at, at their jobs? And what do they need to be good at here in the in the years to come? Well. <laughs> That's a tough question. We're, I was talking about this uh, the other day with a friend of mine, George Pilkin, and I said, you know, college coaches, we don't get a training manual. You know, when you sign up, you guys at the ITA are beginning to, whether it be through podcast, you're formulating, you're tapping the, the more experienced coaches of creating uh, kind of a how-to book, if you will, right? Yep. But when I started coaching in 1992, um, the Old Dominion women's team, 80% of my time was on court and 20% of my time was off the court. So the 20% of the time you had a phone and you would punch a number and you would call some people like a, a coach to schedule a match, um, some recruits, a couple of donors, right? So if you made about eight to 10 phone calls in that day, you were overly ambitious. I mean, I mean that uh, you were really, you were killing it, man. So I was killing it because I make 10 phone calls. And, um, and 80% of my time was on court, hitting balls with the players, coaching them up, and so forth. Now it's the opposite. It's 80% of your time off court, 20% of your time on court. So, you know, you know so, so if you can't do this as a coach, if you don't understand what the courty keypad is, and by the way, Dave, I didn't know what courty means. I went, I was buying a laptop. So does it have a keypad? Yeah, it has a courty keypad. <laughs> He goes, well, if you look at the top row, it's 
Q-W-E-R-T-Y, Quarty. And I go, so when I see a coach out there doing this, I go, man, yeah, you got, I mean, learn how to just put your hands on this thing and start typing because how do you, I, I coached, now you can coach your kids through social media. You can, you know, the messages that are you, you're putting out there. Mm-hmm motivational quotes and they also want to be relevant too. are you promoting them hey we had a i mean if you if you don't have a 10 second shot of everyone in practice you, you know and, and posting two or three times a week this is today's world right so the coach nowadays is 80 percent you know is 80 percent off court and and, and looking at someone in arizona on on a zoom call you know i mean this is what we're this is what we do now yeah and you're not going to stop this. And but at the same time, college tennis. I mean, '92. I wouldn't know how University of Virginia did against Virginia Commonwealth unless I drove to Richmond and got a sports page. And I hope it was in there. And I used to cut them out because that helped me in my scouting. I mean, that now you can. I mean, college tennis has become so much more relevant. It's so much more relevant. You see facilities popping up all across the country, very nice facilities. Yeah, we've lost a couple of programs, sure. But the college coach, I mean, the, the Division three coaches are now full-time people. Division three college coaches, they're so relevant because they attract people to the university, and those people are paying tuition. That's, that's, a, that's an admissions, I mean, they're basically an admissions director. So this whole thing around college tennis has got, and just traveling the country for four weeks. I mean, some of these facilities are, are, uh, you know, are very important. And you see that um, with the college coaches now being targeted by organizations, the UTR for using the facilities to, to enhance tennis, the USTA programming is, is targeting college coaches. The college coach has become a very valuable resource. But the expectation is that the college coach has to be much more of a businessman now and has to have a greater skill set than like me in the 90s. I was just a good looking guy that could play tennis. That's all you needed to be. And I knew the athletic director. Not enough anymore, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot there to, to unpack, Daryl. So just in terms of, again, those, those business skills, so again, most college coaches they've they've maybe had a good playing career somewhere um you know they're good tennis players they love tennis they they want to uh provide a similar experience to their student athletes that they have as as a student athlete but but it continues to evolve and so you know beyond um say the the podcast or the masterclass or the things we're putting out there stuff you know pta ptr how, how can they develop those those business skills is it just going out starting some events learning lessons um speaking to people in the business world speaking to professors i mean how, how can we help coaches evolve and develop these business skills at, at a much faster rate um don't you have an easier question for me? I mean, I, no, you, you've been begging me to come on this podcast. I'm going to throw. Well, it I, I give, give me some layups, man. I mean, like how? I mean, I, I mean, if, how? I guess I need to start a master class. How? Uh, um, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so how? Okay, so how? Okay, so um, the tennis industry is is really cool, and and tennis is really cool. 
It really is. But it's very prehistoric, okay, in the way that we do business. I mean, we went through this when we got the UTR thing going through. And um, certainly, uh, um, um, you know, you, you go to tennis clubs, and these clubs still have like a sheet that you make a reservation on, you know. So in itself is a little prehistoric, you know what I mean? I mean, it, it, it hasn't evolved. It's still a little old-fashioned. And so, like, my, my son graduated from college, uh, Clark. He's working for a startup company, and he played college tennis in Hampton, Sydney. And he just graduated. And it says, when I send him to Hampton, Sydney, you send us your boys, and then we'll send them back as men. So the other night, he goes, hey, how do I do a flyer? Hey, really? I mean, Google presentation, like, like a Google slide. You're going to use a Google slide. Why am I using a Google slide? Well, see, the Google slide, you make it the same size of paper, eight and a half, 11. But the nice thing about the Google slide is now you can save it as a PDF. You can save it as a JPEG. But why do I want to save it as JPEG? Well, you want to save it as a JPEG so you can put it on social media. And I'm going, I'm going to Sydney, I'm getting a refund on this thing. <laughs> so how do coaches, so like, for example, if you don't understand this Google stuff, uh, uh, I mean, you can generate a picture and so forth. So, but the, the, the answer to your question is, look at other industries on the way they do things. You might not look at tennis, look at other things. So I study gyms. You know, like the way that they do it and the way people sign up for classes. Like, if I could take a, so I'll use Manny Diaz. I like him. He's a rock star. So if, if Manny gave me eight hours a week in Georgia and I could put this online and uh, um, I could use the UTR platform, for example, and now someone could go in there and buy that spot for $300, you, you know, now I, I've just connected my, the potential buyer to an experience. Mm -hmm. There you go. So now I, that, that's an idea. Like, so I, matter of fact, I might do this with Manny and split it, you know, uh, but the, you know, those kinds of interactions, those kinds of interfaces, um, these are out there with Google and, and a lot of other products. So my, my point being study other industries on how they do things, you, you know? So, um, Study so if you want to be good at good social media, study the people that do it well. It's the Gary Vandertucks and so forth. Uh, go on TikTok, go on TikTok because you know there, there's a girl there on TikTok with a hundred million followers. A hundred million followers. Now, if so, if you want to get involved in that world, you, you just got to go in there nowadays because now they they don't um, you don't get a manual anymore. I mean, you know, I get this phone and I keep looking for the manual. You know, there's no manual that comes with the phone. So, so how do you do it? Um, I think I go outside of the industry and study other things. Like when I was just in Vegas, I was like, wow, the partnerships were incredible. Like they were bringing people to Vegas, but just don't come to our hotel. Go to this experience. Mm -hmm. Go to, um, if you go to um, Pawn Shop, you know the show Pawn Shop? Yeah. Pawn, Pawn Stars. I, yeah, yeah. I, I went there with my boys and my daughter. My wife wouldn't get out. She was too embarrassed. She wouldn't get out of the RV. That place is a first class dump. I mean, it's, 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 a, when I say dump, I don't mean it in a bad way, but they've made that place so relevant. And you go in and they got some good stuff. So I'm sitting there going, man, that, that's kind of an inspiration. So if I'm, if I'm the coach at Hampton, Sydney or Randolph, Macon or so forth, I go, hey, the, 
and to be relevant, someone needs to come, you know, so, so study what other industries are doing to successful to create relevancy, financial success, be creative. You know, one of the best ITA conventions that I went to, um, it was about this content. Um, how do you get people to come to the match? And now I was very disappointed because Dick Gould spoke. Dick Gould talked 30 minutes about picking up trash. That's it. But it's so relevant. Like, yeah, I walk around and pick up trash because when people come and they see trash, they don't want to come here. And I'm like, Dick Gould's picking up trash. Now he's got like 15 national championships. <laughs> Pick up trash too, if I big because you know, whatever. Or, um, you know, Greg Patton. I mean, you know, he's Greg Patton. I mean, he was doing the weather. He, he was doing right. He So sometimes to become more relevant, you need to become more relevant. But to your question is, is Think outside the box and look at other industries on how they're creating relevancies. And some of the relevancies is um, you can just ask the people on your team. They'll give you that answer because they're, they're following someone who has 2 million, million followers. Hey, coach, you know, so, so the coach just looked to the players. I mean, because they kind of know. Um, so I, I think the answer to is like what the ITA is doing, you're putting together content and you're sharing and so forth. And I commend, you know, you guys on doing that. That That's great. Um, and we see growth in the industry in that, but we're, we're not as good as an industry as we can be, as we will be. Certainly UTR and Mark Lashley came in and kind of joined all the alphabet soup and created dialogue and, mm -hmm. and win-win for everyone and, and so forth and others will do that too uh, um, and I think the ITA um, certainly I mean we, we have some really great coaches uh, all around the country that are that are very creative we just share the stories and again what you guys are doing and look at look outside of the industry yeah 2,500 words Dave I mean did I answer those 25 well in summary so look outside the industry and, and learn some dance moves for TikTok why do you have to say it so damn easy like that? I mean, that's all you have to say. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, watch Gary V, Casey Nasta, and go on TikTok. If you can't, yeah. figure, if you can't figure it out, then yeah, there you go. Yeah, let's shorten up some of these answers. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so, TikTok. So moving on to some of the things that that you've been involved in, really, really yeah. interesting to get your okay. take on this. So, um, you. you, you this seven-shot tennis. So I'm interested in learning more about that, how coaches yeah. can use it to improve their practices. Is it just like seven-minute abs, or, or what is this seven-shot tennis all about? Okay, um, so you caught me off guard there. I, I, I was going to show you a picture of it. Can I show you a picture of it? Maybe I could. Uh, um, yes. uh, you know, that, that might... I've seen pictures of it. I'm just trying to get you to... to yeah, well, it's not like seven-minute abs. Uh, no, it's not like seven minute abs. It, it, it's um, when we um, when we started UTR. That that was kind of funny. I mean, we so it was um, it was meant to provide a language to tennis as far as people's level of play. Just as simple as that. Very very simple. So the sophistication of UTR was the simplicity of it. Hey, it's uh, if you're a level ten, and Tim's a level ten, and I play you guys, and I go six three six four, 
fifty percent of the time, even though I'm losing. Yeah, on your on your level, we're going to have a good match. So that was the simplicity of it. So seven shot tennis is meant to provide a common language for tennis. Um, you know, there's strokes, there's six strokes, and there's a uh, seven shots. So three shots are down the middle. One is in front of the service line. Two is behind the service line. Three is all the way back, like rectangles. So three shots down the middle, one, two, three. And then there's a cross court shot, okay? That's a four. So if I hit my forehand cross court, that's a four. If I hit my backhand cross court, that's a four. And that area is about a singles, a doubles alley width um, uh, inside the, the single sideline. Now, if I hit fives, that's just a sharper angle. So that's Rafa Nadal shots, fives. Six is down the line. My forehand down the line is a six. My backhand down the line is a six. And now my a seven is just a short shot. That's a drop shot um, halfway between the um, service line and the net. So one, two, three down the middle, four cross court, five more cross court, six down the line, seven drop. So now that just becomes common language. So because when you hear tennis on TV, or if I hear this person talk about it, well, Steve Smith says, yeah, it's this kind of shot, and so-and-so says it's this kind of shot, and Amelia Sanchez, they're talking Chinese. So, so what we felt is the follow-up with the Utah, if we can create a language, and this language was simple, then now we can make a social studies teacher better, you know, with, with the high school thing. Mm-hmm. So I tried... Um, so I went out there with my phone. I don't, I don't have it up there right now, but I had the seven-shot thing on there. And so I go to my team at Norfolk State, and I go, do you want to play four, five, six tennis or one, two, three? And so the seven-shot uh, diagram was up there, and uh, they go four, five, six. Okay. Well, today, should we rally down the middle of the court 30 minutes, three to three? Because you said you wanted to play four, five, six. No, no. So we rally cross court four to four, four to four. And okay, now go ahead and um, hey, hit a six down the line for a winner when the conditions are right. You know, and that's what we did. And so we did that for like two weeks. And then the Naval Academy comes to town. We get a big winner of the Naval Academy and Gardner saying, I said, man, you guys hit too many twos. So I was showing the seven shot tennis thing and I explained it to me. And so I, sh- I shared with like 200 coaches mm-hmm. and they have the same response. Can you text that to me? <laughs> so Federer got better in 2017. What did he do? He comes over his backhand and he starts to hit fives. And then he takes the backhand, uses it as a weapon like Wawinka every now and then. He hits it down the line to the six. When he used to slice to the four cross court, Rafa owned him. Rafa would own him. So seven shot tennis so it helped us using the language so our ultimate goal would be to have someone like on the tennis channel who's like john madden you know he, he just this six that he hit wasn't really that great the fact that he hit the four and he put him into the mm-hmm. and he into the flower bed i mean hell anybody can make that six you know just like andy murray and um rafa they're seven their drop shot isn't that great? The fact is, with their cross-court fours, they back you up so much that you and me can make that drop shot. Now, I don't know if we can do it in the finals of U.S. Open under duress and pressure and all these feelings, but 
so it, began, it, it, just, it was just meant to be a common language. So now that's what we're doing. We're just sharing it where, you know, some companies like AccuTennis is using it in, in their the provider language. So hmm. in the past, there hasn't been a language for tennis. So now there is. Uh, there hasn't been a common language. So like chess, there's a common language. We know the way the pieces move and how to play the game. Uh, Mike Tyson, who I should have got on film in Vegas, but my kids didn't let me go knock on the car. My boys made me choke on that one. But anyway, I've seen Mike Tyson talk about boxing, that you know, there's four punches on the left side. They're one, three, five, seven. There's four punches over here, two, four, six, eight. And how his coach would call out four, two, one, you know, so forth and so on. So in tennis, again, this is part of that archaic world that, that um, we're just a little old fashioned. It hasn't evolved. So it's been fun with my, my partners, Dave Howe and Steve Clark. And we, so, you know, we're not under duress to make money with it or profit from it, but, you know, I think it'll become common language and maybe one day we're just selling a clipboard that has this mental representation on it. And yeah, we find that it's very effective with tennis and people can get better faster and more efficiently because you, you just have the common language, but it doesn't kill the creativity of a coach and so forth. It's just a common language. So um, simple as that. That's great. Uh, I'll link to that in our coach education newsletter so coaches can see it. In terms of uh, college tennis, so if, if you were the, the czar of college tennis, you didn't have to deal with the NCA, you didn't have to listen to any coaches' opinions, Yes. Um, you didn't have to really work with anybody, you could just kind of wave a magic wand and uh, introduce some changes to make college tennis more relevant, what would they be? I'm glad you asked that question. So the first thing I would do would, I would explore the opportunity of playing, making the fall individual with an NCAA championship in the fall for individuals. And then the spring to be team. And I would petition, uh, I would try, I would approve that that counts as two sports. That, that's two sports. Individual tennis, team tennis. Two sport, just as, and this will help solve some of the problems of cancellations of the program. So I was talking to Isaac Van der Murphy from Baylor, who's one of my former players, and he goes, "I don't understand it. You know, why don't they get rid of track and field?" And da 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 da. They got all this. I go, Isaac, track and field for the FBS level, you need sixteen sports. Track and field takes care of six of them: men's and women's cross country. Indoor and outdoor track, and I still have trouble with that one. Indoor, outdoor track, and outdoor track, men and women. That's six sports. And they're regurgitating athletes, you know, like the person who wins cross country, runs the long stuff, long stuff, and, and then they go get a pole vaulter. I mean, that's kind of what they do. So tennis is already an enormously long season, more than any other sport. You're playing real competition, you know, September, October, uh, multiple ITA championships and indoors and so forth. So can we get it to count as two sports, which would be, really be four sports with men and women? Now, many athletic directors are looking for more efficient ways, and that's an efficient way. It's a small team. It's a small roster and so forth. So I see this trend going on in volleyball. They got volleyball. Now they add beach volleyball. And then, you know, the very wealthy programs are going to have separate coaching staff, separate players. But for the most part, you can duplicate an athlete there. there. So the 
be the first thing that that I would um, I would do. Now that's two sports, or like I said, four. That's going to be now that's adding greater value to the need of that athletic experience, and um, that it's that it's the the accounts going up, and then just with the formatting, I would make it straight up across the board. Everybody's playing the same. I would go with the doubles first, counting one point, six singles matches, each one counting a point. And I would, I would just make the format um, for doubles, two out of three mini sets, regular scoring, tiebreaker at three all, match breaker for the third. And I would, for the singles, two out of three regular sets to six and a match breaker for the third um, because my belief from listening to players and coaches and so forth, uh, uh, the nature of the game is the opportunity to have a reset. So if you screw up a set, now you can get to do that. And the nature of the game is the first one to four points, win by two, and that's the advantage of the deuce um, of, of regular scoring, playing with the deuces and playing it out that way. I find I'm not anti um, uh, no ad. I think no ad is extremely entertaining. It's, it's very entertaining. You know, it kind of reminds me of the circus. The circus was very entertaining, but there's no more Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus anymore. It's gone, you know? So it is very entertaining. I just don't think it'll last. So as a czar of tennis, I'm signing the executive order, and that's going into play tomorrow, and we're going to use it for the national indoors and the NCAAs, and we're done. And all complaints will come to your email. Okay. Okay. They're coming anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Darryl, so we're, we're, I need some quicker answers here, okay? This is the rapid-fire round we're getting into, so, so short answers. What is a book that made a major impact on you as a coach? Um, let's see, Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. Okay. Um, he's a few books, right? He's, he's three or four books out by now. Yeah, jab, yeah, jab, jab, right hook. Uh, jab, 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 right hook. I think that's a must read for all coaches and crush it. But you said book and you said short answer. I'm a little, uh, no, I know. I, I'm the one trying I'm, to. I want to be able to come back in a couple of years. I know you're going to, you got a lot of editing to do on this podcast. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite drill? My favorite drill is a seven-shot drill where they're, they're playing modified play from the baseline, and they got to call the number before they hit it. So they got to call the four before they hit the four. If they're calling it afterwards, then they didn't really have much vision. And they're starting that point with a serve, or you're just the coaches feeding it in? from. Uh, um, they'll start off playing on the baseline. You know, they'll start off with a hand feed. Okay, okay. Name uh, one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, whether in coaching or in life. You're going to find this hard, but I actually listen better now, David. I mean, like, you know, I know I'm giving some long answers here, and you know, but I think that's what you wanted and you expected. But, I, I mean, I, at least I breathed in. When I was 35, I don't think I breathed in. I, I mean, we, we had lunch with Amelia Sanchez, and after an hour and a half, you know, we're about 45 minutes. Amelia looks at my wife and says, does he always talk this much? <laughs> Just, he's actually pretty good now. He's let you, he's asked you a couple of questions. She goes, I thought they were superficial, but he did ask you a couple of questions. But he's better now. 
you know, with medication. But I think I'm becoming a better listener, David. Okay, and more self-aware. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite quote? Um, well, I, I use this one a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's off of the it's a, off of the one. If a tree fell in the woods, does anyone hear it? You know, so mine is uh, I like if a bear craps in the woods and no one's around to step in it. Did he really crap in the woods? <laughs> <laughs> and most people, you know, I was a philosophy major in college. You know, it was, it was the easiest exit strategy, which wasn't so easy, but it, it just it, it's about promotion, man. If you do something good with your program or something and no one's around to know about it did you really do something good mm. it's a promotional quote you know okay that's but, I, but i modified it I, I used the word crap because but you know crap sometimes works good so that's that's kind of my favorite quote at this point in my life okay well i'm going to start using that if that's okay <laughs> Well, I think you want to, that ought to be a masterclass for ITA just on promotion, right? Hey guys, how to promote your college coach? Just, yep. it's great, right? It's a good clickbait to, to, for what class we're doing. Yeah, well, I know what I'm naming this podcast now, so uh, it's... Well, wait, uh, wait. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, and next time, you know, I, I mean, I'm really disappointed about because I'm not in the office with all my stuff that I've stolen. It. I'm, I'm afraid sometimes doing broadcasts. I got all these NCAA stuff and trophies. Most of it I just stole from other places. And, and um, I'm afraid they're going to come repossess it. So, uh, um, and then I, I do want to have a featured podcast when I'm bringing the RV to, to, to Zona. I'm yeah. Like Zona. Yeah. We are absolutely going to do a part two in person, Daryl. So um, I'm looking forward to that day, especially when uh, COVID is is past us and we can sit sit down yes, and here. So Daryl, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with our college coaches, and uh, looking forward to to part two at some point. All right, David, thank you. That's very kind. Mm-hmm.